Mark chapter three, beginning in verse seven, it says, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him. And cried out saying, you are the son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. It doesn't take long when you ask the question, who is the most significant human being who has ever lived for the answer to be Jesus Christ? As a matter of fact, if you take. Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, Napoleon, and you take the sum and the substance of all of the articles written about them in, in a thing like Encyclopedia Britannica. If you take the sum and the substance, they, they don't match the one person of Jesus Christ. It was the very famous historian Philip Schaff who wrote, quote, this Jesus of Nazareth without money and arms conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and all scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons and orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times, unquote. Another Yale historian, Kenneth Scott LaTourette, says, quote, it is evidence of his importance, of his effect that he has upon history and presumably of the baffling mystery of his being that no other life ever lived on this planet has evoked so huge a volume of literature among so many people and languages and that far from ebbing, the flow continues to mount. In this particular portion in Mark's gospel, we find Jesus at the pinnacle of his popularity. In the third chapter of Mark, Jesus has been called a lawbreaker. He's been called a miracle worker in verses 7 through 12. Later, Jesus will be called master in verses 13 through 19. The third, the third chapter of Mark, we get a glimpse at Jesus's courage and compassion in verses one through six and then verses seven through twelve. Later on in the chapter, we'll draw attention to the call of Jesus in verses 13 through 19. But the criticism is far from over in verses 20 through 30. You see. At the height of Christ's popularity is also the height of the persecution and injury. Remember in verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. I don't know if you've ever had a person hate you with all of their might. As a matter of fact, they may have devoted part of their life or even wealth their considerable resources to hating you. And that's where Jesus finds himself at the height of popularity and also at the height of prejudice and persecution. Love him or hate him. Everyone has an opinion about him. As a matter of fact, there's one question that has never been unanswered whenever I ask it. No matter who you are and no matter what you believe, the moment I ask you, tell me what you think about Jesus, everyone has something to say. I've never had a single person say, shut up. That's none of your business. Everyone has an opinion. 
Is he a lawbreaker, a great man, a miracle worker, an ascended master? Is he the king of reality, the Lord of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things? In this passage, Jesus heals those who are sick and he will restore those who are possessed. The religious leaders have rejected him and seek to kill him. But in the presence of the hostility and popularity, the crowds continue to swell. Hostility, popularity, they're going to combine to a huge mountain of pressure. But what does Jesus do when he's faced with hostility, when he's faced with popularity? By the way, he will remove himself to a place where he's going to be less vulnerable to the strategies and the pressures. And later in the chapter, Jesus will share the growing demands and responsibilities with others. One of the ways that he will deal with the pressure is he will find time to be alone with his father. But also he will find time to divide the sorrow so that he can share the joy. Look again in verse seven. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Like I said in the previous passage, the religious leaders are plotting his death. Jesus withdraws. It could very well be that the narrow streets of Capernaum make him an easy target. So he goes to a place where things are open. One of the things that you should learn right from the start is that Jesus is not inviting death, nor is he running from his enemies. A careful reading of the New Testament will reveal something about Jesus, that there is one great overarching purpose always in the back of his mind. And that's to fulfill the plan and purpose of God for his life. You see, Jesus has come to honor his father and to fulfill God's will Jesus will face his enemies, but sometimes he's going to get out of harm's way. Jesus isn't afraid to stay and Jesus isn't afraid to go. He's thoughtful and careful. You know, the New Testament says that we as Christians should try to seek peace, that we're to live peaceably among all people so long as we are able. But sometimes withdrawal from hostility is the best course of action. And it becomes a clue for each and every one of you who are under pressure. Sometimes the best course of action is for you to have some time out with the Lord. As a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, we'll see Jesus withdraw from the crowds in chapter 6, verse 31, and verse 46, in chapter 7, verse 24, and 31, in chapter 10, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 34. Sometimes we need a time out. And sometimes we take the time out, and sometimes God makes us take the time out. There's a reason why the psalmist said, He maketh us to lie down in green pastures. Sometimes you are going to not be able to do what you want to do. And look at the end of the verse, his impact on people. It says, and a great multitude from the Galilee followed him and from Judea. Jesus is at the height of popularity. And Mark points out that people have come from all over the nation. They're not only just going to come from the nation, but they're going to come from the surrounding nations, from the far north to the far south to the east. As a matter of fact, at that time, remember, the Galilee was heavily populated area. Remember, for those of you who have been following along in our study in Mark's gospel, we learned from Josephus that there were over 200 cities in the Galilee in the first century with populations in excess of 15,000 people. And so when you hear great multitude, don't think of hundreds of people. Don't even think of thousands of people. Think of tens of thousands of people coming from the north and coming from the south in this congestion That surrounded the lake that you and I call the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, crowds aren't always a sign of success. 
As a matter of fact, it's pretty easy to draw a crowd. If you do something crazy or outrageous, people will come to see you. But crowds can serve a good means. As the fame of Jesus grew and Christ's fame grew, so did the crowds. In his earthly ministry, you can imagine, remember, Jesus is a human being with all of the limitations of being a human being. He can only be in one place at one time. And no matter how many people show up, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, as they create a mechanism of trying to get close to him, he's not going to be able to be everywhere at once. He has no problem generating a crowd, but he has no problem thinning out a a crowd as well. We're going to see that in John's Gospel, chapter 6, where literally tens of thousands of people are coming, but then Jesus says something to really upset the whole ministry. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. Religious Jews are thinking, what? Cannibalism? That's disgusting. You see, Jesus is willing to say things that you may not have a whole lot of comfort with. People are easily influenced. I think that there's a legitimate popularity that comes with God-given favor. I've experienced it in my own life. My friend, I have a friend who's the pastor of one of the largest churches in America and God in his grace and his mercy has seen favor to bless his ministry. I think of Billy Graham who who when he would speak throughout his ministry, literally tens of thousands of people would come. My friend Franklin Graham who's going to be at the front range when he was talking about what he believed God would have in mind. He talked about bringing up about a mechanism where people could hear the gospel. I think of Joel Rosenberg. I remember seeing him just even last week on CNN and and then watching him on Fox News and and hearing a local uh, radio announcer interview him. And I I thought about the, the favor that God has blessed him with, but for good reason. There are people who are interested in this life and this circumstance and what the Bible has to say. People are still curious about Jesus, but they're also curious about the future. And what does the future hold? In Mark chapter 3, verse 8, he says, And Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. Twice the phrase, a great multitude appears. It's in chapter 7. It's, excuse me, verse 7. And then again in verse 8, the crowds are coming from Jerusalem and Judea. One of the things you need to know that today, if you were to walk from the southern section of Judea all the way to the Galilee, you're talking about a journey of about 100 miles. And so we're talking about people coming from everywhere. Idumea, by the way, was the province that was way south and way east of Jerusalem in modern Jordan. You would have to cross the Jordan and come to um, an ancient place called Edom. As a matter of fact, Idumea was the ancestral home of Herod the Great. Its, its borders extended all the way down to modern Arabia. And so that word, Idumea, was the Greek name and the Roman name for the ancient land of Edom. And that was the land of Esau. It's found in Genesis chapter 25, verse 30, and Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. This is the place where the ancestral relatives of the Jews would live. Tyre and Sidon was to the immediate north. North of the Galilee, in the modern uh, place that you and I would call um, Lebanon, but it was a part of the ancient kingdom of Phoenicia. The point? People are coming from way, way north, way, way south. They're traveling significant distances to see Jesus. And Mark gives the reason. When they heard how many things he was doing. They came to him. Some people live in a world of their own making. 
a delusion. Some people reading the Bible will say, these people were stupid. They were naive. This is a pre-scientific era. They don't understand about reality. You couldn't be further from the truth. In the ancient world, people were very, very smart. And the real world in which they lived, the real world in which they lived, when they had a family member who they loved contract a disease, they usually died of the disease. Blind people didn't have their eyes open. Deaf people didn't get to hear again. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, as well as in the modern world, a person born blind, a person who is deaf, a person who experiences miraculous intervention on the part of God, it is an amazing thing. And if you've ever had a family member, a loved one, someone that you care about, who is suffering under incredible circumstances, what wouldn't you do if you heard that there was a person alive on the planet who, if you just simply could get close enough to him, if, you, if he would just simply place his hand on your head, if he would just simply embrace you, everything that was wrong could be made right. And the news traveled quickly. The amazing abilities of Jesus defied logic and the laws of nature. And people began to ask the question, who is he? Is this the long-awaited Messiah? Is this the person who's been talked about in the Old Testament? Is Jesus sent by God to provide the Sabbath? Satisfying solution to the problem of human beings' deep-seated needs. Is Jesus really the answer? You know, to this very day, one of the most effective questions you can ask is that question. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And like the crowds of old, how do we get close enough to see who he really is? You know, we think about 2,000 years of history. And there's something disturbing that happens every year at Christmas and Easter time, whether it's National Geographic or the History Channel or the Science Channel. The combined mechanism of the world will create a narrative that says Jesus isn't who he says he is. Or you can't trust the Bible. But I'm here to tell you the most authoritative information about the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus is found in your Bible. And that's why we pay such close attention to it. That's why we devote a great deal of our ministry helping you understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all of the, of the Old Testament books and the New Testament books. And like the crowds of old, we press in and we say, who is he? What is he? Why is he here? And by the way, the popularity of Jesus and his followers will ebb and flow. Even in my short life, there have been times when it was popular to be a Christian and times when it's not so popular. The efforts of Christians will be accepted by some and rejected by others. But whether popular or unpopular, the identity of Jesus remains the same. Look at verse 9. It says, so he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude. There's that word again. Lest they should crush him. Think about that for just a moment. The people who hate Jesus, they're trying to get rid of him. The people who are curious about Jesus also threaten him. That's kind of a weird concept, isn't it? But if you've ever been to a Broncos game, and if you've ever been sucked into a crowd, is it possible that a stampede can overwhelm you? Just a couple of years ago, maybe you heard the story about how Walmart was opening at O-Dark 30, and some poor old man is manning his post, and people literally storm the doors and stampede him and kill him. The crowds became overwhelming to the point of threatening his life. Now, there's something else about verse 9 that I want to draw to your attention. Remember, he tells his disciples to keep a small boat ready just in case. You know what we don't learn? Whether or not he used it. The text doesn't tell us. 
The text doesn't, doesn't say, oh, by the way, it was necessary and he pushed out in the boat so that he could preach the lesson. We're not told. And you know what's interesting to me? I want you to draw particular attention, particularly if you number yourself as a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. He told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready. The pressure is on Jesus. And the pressure is intense. And it seems like such a small request. Remember, part of his disciples are fishermen. Get me a boat. Get the boat. Keep it ready just in case. I'm going to suggest to you that there's going to be times in your life when God, by his Holy Spirit, speaks to you and says, get ready. I need you to do something for me. I need you to set aside your home. I need you to set aside your business. I need you to set aside your car. I need you to set aside your considerable talents because I'm going to use you. I want to use you for my glory. I I need you to set something aside for me. Well, Jesus, when are you going to use it? I'll let you know. But I need you to be ready. I need you to be ready in your mind and in your heart. I'm preparing you for something. I'm preparing you to be used by me for the kingdom's sake and for glory's sake. Now, this is interesting. The popularity of Jesus is also going to be complemented by his adaptability. Jesus can and will preach in the desert. He will preach in the synagogue. He will preach on the shore. He'll preach on a boat. He'll preach in a grocery store. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus is prepared to preach under favorable conditions and not so favorable conditions. And Jesus wants to use under favorable conditions and maybe not so favorable conditions. And Jesus is not going to allow popularity or success or even human need to divert him from the primary ministry. The primary ministry of Jesus isn't to heal the sick or even to cast out demons. The primary ministry of Jesus is to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the necessity of repentance from sin, to believe God's message of hope and forgiveness in the person of God's Messiah. And by the way, in case you've forgotten, in the first chapter of Mark's gospel in verse 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But Jesus is willing to push off a little way. In order to teach and preach the message. And by the way, that's exactly what's happened. Jesus came and he lived on the earth and he died on the cross and he arose from the dead. And he pushed off from a little blue pearl that you and I call the earth. He did it not to make life miserable for you, but to make life better. I think I know you. And if you're anything like me. You sometimes dream about what it would have been like to be with him. Can you imagine there you are on the shores of the Galilee and the crowds are pressing in and Jesus is saying, I need you to get a boat ready. And even then you realize that even if he takes day after day after day, every single person wants to touch him, that it can't be done, that Jesus is going to push off. You see, the reality is. Jesus is now in a place where all can see him by faith. You see, you might think it's Jesus. We don't want you to go. But remember what Jesus said to his own disciples. If I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. Remember, he said, if I go, I am going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will be in you. Jesus doesn't leave the earth to make problems. He, He goes to make life easier. And by the way, when I said that he is in a place now where everyone can see him by faith, it's true. I've watched people in the jungles of Colombia look up into heaven and raise their hands and cry out to God and Jesus. I've seen people on the shores of the Pacific, in Chile, in Mexico, in California, all by faith, they raise their hands and their head and they cry out to God and they ask Jesus 
to come into their life. I've watched people in Jerusalem. I've watched people in Bombay. I've seen people on the eastern shore of India, on the, next to the Indian Ocean, cry out to God. And I've seen Jesus answer their prayers. We live in a world where people will mob Lady Gaga. They'll spend hours, maybe even days, to be on the Oprah show. I've seen little teeny boppers plaster their little walls with Justin Bieber posters. There's something about celebrity that attracts people. But the celebrity status of Jesus is going to be mixed with with mixed reviews. People are going to want so desperately to be next to him. For what he might do for them. But Mark leaves us with an amazing impression. And the impression seems to be that far more people are interested in what Jesus can do for them rather than what Jesus is willing to to say to them but don't get me wrong Jesus will offer healing and Jesus will offer hope look what the text itself said he healed many so that as many as had afflictions read it for yourself pressed about him to touch him the word affliction is very interesting in the original language it literally means a whip or a lash if you're a parent or a grandparent and you've ever studied the scrutiny of your children or grandchildren, they always have little lashes. There's little cuts and bruises. They'll get a scrape over their eye or, you know, you'll look at their arm or their leg or this or that. And you'll look at it. Hey, well, how did you get that scratch? Where did that come from? How did you get this? And how did you get that? The word affliction can be translated plague. Or scourge. Usually illnesses fall into two different kinds of categories. Those that are life-threatening and those that are inconvenient. But whether the injury was life-threatening or whether the injury was inconvenient, they came to Jesus. They came to him. The crowds represent two primary sources of needy people, those troubled in their body and those troubled in their soul. Those who are possessed, read it for yourself, by demons. But remember, Jesus will heal the body in order to demonstrate what he's willing to do for the soul. The miracles of Jesus illustrate, demonstrate, express in visible and real, tangible ways the loving kindness of God, his goodwill towards human beings, his desire for our happiness, his willingness to shield us from evil. And the miracles were meant to demonstrate his power as king and true Lord. And in his grace and his mercy, he allows the supernatural intervention of his power in our lives to remind us of his grace and goodness. Desperate people came for a miracle. And do you blame them? I don't. Jesus wants to give real people hope. What did the afflicted do? They pressed about him. The verb is epi. Pipto. It means to fall upon. But the picture is a persistent picture of wave after wave of people falling upon Jesus, falling upon Jesus, pressing him, pressuring him. And you can imagine the pressure begins to build. As a matter of fact, the danger for Jesus is that the sea of humanity is willing to shove him. Into another ocean. And you know what's interesting to me? Again, in the text. Jesus doesn't do something supernatural. He doesn't go, since I'm the God of the universe, I'm going to create a big, clear acrylic bubble to keep people away from me. He doesn't just go and disappear. 
He creates a mechanism, a human mechanism in order to alleviate the pressure of a boat and to be cast off. And guess what? Most of the deliverance that you experience from pressure isn't some supernatural deliverance. Most of it is going to come through the careful prayer and planning as you rely on the Lord and you begin to make a provision. Some people came seeking a miracle. Maybe some people came expecting to see a miracle. Some came to Jesus as skeptics, critics, the curious. Some may have been entirely motivated by what you might perceive or I might perceive as selfish reasons. Some may have come intrigued by the strange and wonderful and penetrating teachings of Jesus. But there may have been a few who were drawn by the possibility that Jesus could cure the most miserable and pernicious problem of all. The emptiness, the darkness, the wickedness that wells up inside of each and every person who understands that they don't have a right relationship with God, that there's something missing and that there's something wrong. And Jesus doesn't change his message or lower the demands in order to meet the needs of the crowd. And I want to point something else out to you that you may never have seen ever before. Tens of thousands, maybe multiple tens of thousands of people are coming forth. And you know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't take up an offering. And he doesn't ask for their help. Now, since I've got you tens of thousands of people, I want you to open up your robes and pull out your biggest denarius for God. He never does that. Ever. He never, ever says to the people who are there, ever, give me what you have. Help me with the job. He never does that. He basically says everything that needs to be done, I'll do it. Because the most important thing that needs to be done, only he can do it. Reality, no matter how much I preach, I can't bring a single person to a saving knowledge of the truth. You see, I can't save you and I can't heal you. But Jesus can. The reality is that a real Savior who came down from heaven, who offers the same thing that he offered these people, divine reconciliation, forgiveness of sin. Jesus doesn't ask for the multitude's help for his ministry endeavors. Can something as simple as the proclamation of the gospel by the power of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit create an empty heart? With the knowledge that it can be made full, a broken heart, that it can be mended, a guilty heart, that it can be forgiven. You see, the committed are willing to serve Jesus and the curious want their questions answered. So what constitutes the convincing power of God in Christ that Christianity is true, that Jesus is Lord, that human beings have hope? We could point to a number of things. We could talk about fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. We could talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We could talk about the hundreds and then thousands and then millions of lives that have been changed by Jesus. But again, Mark leaves us with the impression that the curious were way more interested in what Jesus could do for them and less interested in what Jesus had to say to them. Let me ask you a question. How would you describe yourself? Committed to Jesus? Curious about Jesus? Or would you describe yourself as that person in that dark and empty place? Broken? And wondering if there's any hope for you whatsoever. Do you follow Jesus from place to place and church to church hoping to see a miracle or receive a miracle? Because throughout the ministry of Jesus, he will draw some and others will be driven away. But in the end, the people who are only looking for a miracle... For the people who were only looking for bread. 
in the end, they're going to become disillusioned with Jesus. Just like some of you. But some would listen to Jesus. Some would take up the challenge. Some would hear Jesus' statements when he would say, follow me. Take up your cross. Go in the direction that I'm going. Some people go to church for their children or to appease their conscience. And some go and they hear the gospel, but they have no intention whatsoever of obeying the gospel. They're willing to postpone or put off the commitment like the philosophers in Athens when Paul went to Mars Hill and he challenged them concerning the true and the living God. And they said, we'll listen to you later. I'll come back next Sunday or in Acts chapter 24 when Paul is before the Roman governor Felix and he is arrested for alleged crimes. And the the emperor or the governor Felix is waiting to receive a bribe from Jesus. And so he's willing to listen to what Paul has to say and he's willing to listen for a few weeks. But then when Paul gets a little too close to home, he says, I've heard enough and I'm not ready to listen to any more. The truth is that the curious invariably will be called to a commitment. And some will, but most won't. Look what it says in verse 11, the servant's impact on evil spirits. And it says, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out saying, you are the son of God. So what is the impact of Jesus upon demonic beings? The demonic spirit acknowledges his identity and his deity. As a matter of fact, when it says you are the son of God, not a son of God, but the son of God. By the way, are demons motivated by love? No. Are they motivated by admiration? No. Do you know what motivates them? Sheer terror, sheer, raw terror. The unclean spirits are profoundly aware of their final destination. You know, the Bible says Jesus created hell, not for you, not for me. The Bible says that hell was created for the devil and for his angels There was to be a place where a quarantine could come about where sin and sinners would be forever separated from the righteousness and the holiness of God. They're condemned. There's a reason why. Look what the text says. They're unclean spirits. The reason why the New Testament paints them as morally and spiritually filthy. These are evil spirits that urge others to participate in evil and they are condemned. Yesterday I was looking at a program with, about the FBI and a, and a case that they had been working on. A young girl in a town in Texas, eight years old was kidnapped out of her little apartment. She was taken by a predator. He sexually assaulted her and cut her throat and left her to die. Do you know what happened? The little girl lived. The little girl lived. The doctor said she would never be able to speak. But after they sewed her throat shut, guess what? Her voice came back and she was able to identify the predator and name him by name. But you know what? It took 18 years to find him. They eventually found him with DNA and increased uh, opportunities. They found him in a prison He had been released for another charge of kidnapping. And when they found him and he discovered that the little girl had grown up and was alive, he feigned tears. But remember, this isn't tears of remorse or repentance. These are tears that he's been found out. And they're getting ready to take him to trial. And this little girl who had grown up waited for the moment when she could confront her accuser face to face and say to him, How what he had done and how it had affected her life. And the man hung himself. 
in his prison cell. You see, he was already condemned. Think of the tragedy. Think of the tragedy. There are those people who are on a course of action committed to resisting and rebelling against God. Who are the condemned? These are the people who have no intention to ever trust God or believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. The demonic spirits are willing to confess the supremacy of Jesus, but mere mortals, foolish human beings are unwilling to do what demons know to be true. You know what the Bible says? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. By the way, demons should never be seen as a credible source of revelation. Demons aren't who you go to in order to get information about God. Jesus has no interest in receiving witness from the condemned. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, And he, that's Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things Jesus might have the preeminence, or that in everything Jesus will have the supremacy. David Bryant, in a book entitled Christ is All, describes the supremacy of Jesus in terms of focus and fulfillment and fullness and fervency. This is a hope shaped by who Jesus is as the Son of God. That is the focus of his supremacy. It is a hope shaped by where Christ leads and the purposes of God. That's the fulfillment of his supremacy. It's a hope shaped by how Jesus imparts the resources of God. That's the fullness of his supremacy. It's a whole shaped by what Jesus receives from the people of God. That's the fervency of his supremacy, but it never ceases to amaze me how people are willing to mock God and mock Jesus and make fun of Jesus and make fun of the Bible. They call him the invisible man in the sky, but it's more than that. They mock you, the committed. They mock you. Because they think, how could you be so stupid as to believe in something that's not there? And they're not willing to listen. Are you serious? Have you real? Can you really give me an explanation for the life of Jesus and the supernatural birth of Jesus and the words of Jesus? Let me ask you a question. If God could become a man, wouldn't you expect him to say the most important things that have ever been said? Wouldn't you expect him to do the most incredible things that have ever been done? Wouldn't you expect him to have power over demons and disease and disaster? Hey, I'm more than happy. I'm more than happy to be exactly where you are, an unbeliever. Just make the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus go away. And they can't do it. I had a friend who sent me a note. He sends me little things that make me laugh. The note said, an older couple were walking on a beach when the husband tripped over a bottle and a genie came out. You can each have one wish, said the genie, and none of that nonsense about, I wish for a hundred more wishes. The wife made her wish first. I'd like to travel around the world with my husband, and suddenly there appeared two tickets for travel around the world. That was the husband's turn. Well, said the husband with a little naughty look on his face. I wish I could have a younger companion. And as soon as the words came out of his mouth, he was 20 years older. Yeah, things don't always turn out the way that you had dreamed. You think you can beat the genie. You think that you can beat God. You think that you can trick him. The demons couldn't. The reality. Look what it says in verse 12. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. What does that mean? The expression sternly warned is translated in the NIV gave them strict orders not to tell, but it's too mild. 
The verb is epi, tameo. It means rebuke. It's the same word that's used when Jesus stills the water. Remember, there's a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. The wind is howling and the storm is blowing and the Jesus rebukes the wind. That's the same word here. As a matter of fact, the word... I'm trying to think of an English equivalent. Have you ever heard the expression that my granny used to use? Put a sock in it. This is a polite way of saying, shut up. But it's even stronger. It means to put a muzzle on it. It means be gagged. Imagine that. Why does Jesus do that? Because, again, Jesus doesn't rely on the testimony of unclean spirits. He doesn't care about the testimony of the condemned. He doesn't desire that a single person believe him, trust him, love him on the basis of evil spirits. By the way, it's the same thing that happened to Paul in the book of Acts. You'll remember that there was a woman who had a spirit of divination and they followed Barnabas and Paul around. And the woman kept saying, These men are servants of the Most High God. And finally, Paul turns around and casts the demon out of her. Both Jesus and the apostles rejected the testimony of demons. Demons have no desire to advance the cause of Christ. Remember, demons mislead people. They use deceit as a useful tool. And by the way, in verse 22, the religious leaders are going to later claim that demons and Jesus are allies with one another. The truth Jesus has complete, total power over demons. That should bring great comfort and assurance to the saints. But it should be terrifying to the unbeliever. The confession Jesus is looking for isn't from a demon. The confession that Jesus is looking for is a broken and a contrite heart. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 34, 18, remember what the psalmist wrote. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as has a contrite heart. The confession that Jesus is looking for is from someone like you. A person who's sorry for their wickedness and their sin. Who are tired of living under the enormous blanket of guilt And who want to experience love and joy and peace. Are you under pressure? Is there something in your home or at work or in a friendship or in a marriage? Is it becoming increasingly difficult to tell who are your friends and who are your enemies? Do you make every effort to do what's right? And you're completely misunderstood by your family or your friends or even your enemies. In a book entitled Joy That Lasts, Gary Smalley tells the story of Jim. Jim had been married for almost 10 years and there was nothing terribly wrong in his marriage, but there was something missing. The excitement, the joy, the novelty had gone. In an attempt to recapture some of those old feelings, Jim asked his secretary about some suggestions that he might have for his upcoming anniversary. And the secretary said, well, get her flowers and... Oh, yeah, get her some candy. And you know what else? Go to the library. Get a book of poetry. Women love poetry. And so Jim wasn't a flowers, candy, poetry kind of a guy. But the excitement began to build. And he he went to the candy shop. And he went to the flower shop. And he went to the library. And he got a book of poetry. And he started reading it. And he canceled all of the appointments for the afternoon. And he went home. And he rang the doorbell. And he had the candy and the flowers. And his wife opened the door. And he began reciting the poetry. And she just started staring at him with this blank, incredulous, incredible look. And then all of a sudden, she just burst into tears. And Jim said, honey, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? The garage door is broken and the baby is sick and leaking from both sides and the dog has ate the TV remote and now you've come home drunk. Just like real life, huh? 
You try to do what's right. You tried to be helpful. You tried to be sensitive. And people misunderstand. You get exactly the opposite response you're looking for. Has your hard work been rewarded with criticism? Did you expect a word of hope and encouragement and then you got yelled at? Did you pour out your heart only to have it stomped on? How do you deal with the pressure? How do you become less vulnerable to the pressure? Guess what? Every once in a while, sometimes you just need to be by yourself with Jesus. Every once in a while, sometimes you need to divide the sorrow so that you can share the joy. If you're committed to Jesus, guess what? There might be some act of service, some special request in the not too distant future that Jesus says, I need to set this aside for me. I need to keep it in reserve. Because when you least expect it, I'm going to call upon you. For the curious, he wants your questions answered in a satisfactory way. For the condemned, for the people who are determined to resist God and refuse Jesus, I'm here to tell you something. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. But so that that person who's already condemned can be rescued out of the blackness and the darkness and the emptiness that's inside of their heart. Are you committed? Be prepared to serve him. Are you curious? There are real answers to your very real questions. Do you feel condemned? Guess what? It doesn't have to end badly for you. My advice? Bow the knee now. Don't do it later. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. For the committed, Lord, I pray that you'd make them available for service. For the curious, Lord, I pray that you would begin to answer their deep questions. And for the condemned, Lord, I pray that you would extend an invitation to them. That in that darkness and in that wickedness and in that rebellion and in that resistance, they would say, I'm willing to say yes instead of no. I'm willing to embrace rather than resist. I'm willing to hear the voice of God offer me forgiveness and hope. I'm ready to confess that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. Lord, I want you to come into my life Make me a new creation. Make me a committed Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.